Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, hello. Hello. Good to see you. I'm keen to talk to you. There has been a major set of results since we last released a podcast and a lot of conjecture about what that means. I mean, can you really call it a landslide? Yeah, I think there's a punchline coming. (laughs) I can see a punchline lumbering over the hill. It's like a relatively slow elephant coming into view. It's trunk waving. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Because by the time this podcast drops on Monday, Eurovision will have happened. Yes, phew. Are you excited? Can you just kind of say, it seems to come around quicker every year. Did the UK get nul point last time? Yeah, but um, I think we're currently the third favourite. Are you going to, like, dress up or something? I don't quite go that far, but what's exciting is uh, I'm going to let Jean stay up to watch it. I'm so impressed the way you sort of throw yourself into these things. You can come round if you want. What a nice offer. Uh, so, sorry, I, I, I didn't detect any uh, any acceptance or... <laughs> I don't think I would be quite... I don't think I would sort of make the party. Oh, you'd make any party, Ed. As a kid, I think I did used to like the marking part of it. Oh, I, I love that part. Uh, Bucks Fizz aren't in there this year. I mean, they might they might be in the audience. <laughs> <laughs> they might be in the audience. Yeah. I do remember when Bucks Fizz won. Yeah, I think for us, that's probably like it is for older people remembering England winning the World Cup. Yeah. What do you remember about it? That they won. I don't remember much else. It wasn't a big night in the Miliband household. What do you Your think? Your dad didn't put down his latest Marxist thesis to celebrate. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what do you think? Uh, that Bucks, Were Bucks Fizzell, sorry to be asking an yeah. question, were they the last UK winner? No, our last winner was Katrina and the Waves, I think, in 1997. Ah, yes, that's correct. Yeah. 99 Red Balloons? No, that was a Eurovision song. I'm pretty sure. Will you check? I mean, if I've outdone you on pop knowledge, then that I am true. This is truly a proud. This is truly a historic moment. I'm just googling it now. Um, I'm pretty confident here. Yeah, it's misplaced confidence. I think it was not a Eurovision song. What? Am I? Are you really serious? It's just it's like my imagination. Yeah, that is so strange. I just have completely made this up. Yeah, you've embarrassed yourself like you did on that Boston Red Sox quiz. I think you might be wrong. Are you sure about this? Well, I'm on the the Wikipedia page for that song, and there's no mention of Eurovision. Now, I don't know if um, Naina has availed herself of the EU legislation on um, privacy and the internet and getting things removed, but I I don't think so. I've got no Eurovision Mm. association with that. Well, my pop knowledge remains rock bottom. Well, I'll I'll keep a space on the sofa and some dips and a scorecard for you, just in case. Okay, who knows? Gene and I will be waiting for the doorbell to ring. Where, where's Ed? When's when's Ed coming? Yeah, don't get his hopes up too much. Uh, should we talk about what we're talking about? Yes. 
This week, we're looking at dyslexia and how perceptions and narratives around it are shifting. 10% of the population has some degree of dyslexia, and, and many people in the public eye have been open about their experiences. However, we're still at a stage where many organisations are still trying to address public misconceptions and campaign for more support for teachers, parents and individuals. And to find out why we can be cautiously optimistic around dyslexia and neurodiversity, we are joined by Andy Cook, who is the CEO of the Helen Arkell Dyslexia Charity. We also have Kate Griggs, who is founder and CEO of a charity called Made by Dyslexia, which um, promotes a positive view of dyslexia. And then we're going to be talking to Rob Jennings, who is a teacher and co-founder of the Dyscalculia Network, Dyscalculia being an adjacent difference uh, around numbers. I think it will be a very interesting conversation. It is. It is a very interesting conversation. So what's your reason to be cheerful then? Well, I've sort of not exactly spoiled for choice, but I, I've got a couple of, pos- of options. But I, I think what I've settled on is swimming related. Really? You- uh, surprisingly, there's two things I saw, which I hopefully indicate a certain sort of tranquility of mind that I get when swimming. Mm. First of all, I saw a duck with a large twig in its mouth. I thought you said Twix then for a second. Uh, not a Twix, no. Uh, not a Twix or a Bounty Bar. Uh, and the duck was swimming. And I thought, where's the duck swimming with the twig? And then I saw the duck's partner and they were building a nest on a blue rubber ring or something, you know, which is in the water. And I thought, oh, God, what an amazing thing to see. And so the, it was quite a long, quite a big twig and quite a long swim. And then they sort of deposited the twig and then the, the other duck said thanks a lot and then duck number two twig carrier went off to find another twig and then i think i saw a stork oh you know who you're starting to remind me of go on saint francis of assisi <laughs> why <laughs> couldn't he sort of charm and and talk to birds oh oh i see uh anyway so that's that's my i also i also i mean i'll just chuck this in i also made an i've gone back to the kitchen and i've made an made an aubergine thingamajig it was sort of it got sort of five and a half out of ten i would say i feel slightly hurt that you didn't send me one of your pictures you kind of picture shamed me slightly but it's just that your presentation i think what you go for is it looks like the food has fallen on the floor and then been scraped back onto the plate (laughs) well there may be a certain truth to that you think bake-off i'm sort of i'm somewhere else yeah perhaps not celebrity master chef Right, what's your reason to be cheerful? My reason to be cheerful is that I gave a, a tour of a ground floor and basement flat in um, Montague Square in central London this week, and I, I got to feel what it's like being an estate agent. Say more. Well, actually, what, what made it exciting was, A, the history of the flat, and B, the person that I was showing round. So it's this flat at 34 Montague Square. It has a blue plaque. And it was rented by Ringo Starr in the mid-60s. When he moved out, Paul McCartney moved in. He built a little studio there. He lived there for a while. He wrote Eleanor Rigby there. He recorded some spoken word stuff with William Burroughs. Then he moved out. Jimi Hendrix moved in. Goodness And me. he wrote The Wind Cries Mary there after an argument with his girlfriend one day. Then he got Ringo out to evict him because he, he uh, vandalised the walls with paint whilst on LSD. And uh, the, the next famous occupants were John Lennon and Yo. Ono after he left his wife and it's where they took like the famous full frontal nudity album cover it's where he's busted for drugs by this corrupt police officer which then meant he spent half of the 70s fighting the US government and do you want to know who I got to show around yes the actor Martin Freeman wow yeah how could what uh, uh, that's top draw what how? What? Why? So this this when? flat is now owned by um, a tailoring company called Mason and Sons, and a friend of mine is the tailor in residence, a guy called Henry, who made the suit for my wedding. And you know, I do this Beatles show for American Radio. Yeah, the producer had booked Martin Freeman as a guest. I told him about this. He said, "Oh, do you think you could give Martin a tour?" So I, I got to take Martin Freeman to this place where you, you can't go there as a member of public. I mean, I guess you could go and order a suit, but it was it was really exciting, and it was great to talk to him about the Beatles. How extraordinary! And, and what was really weird is he didn't mention appearing in the 2015 election broadcast for you. Hmm. Funny that. Reasons to be cheerful, a podcast about ideas with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. So to start the conversation, I'm delighted to say that we are joined by Andy Cook from the Helen Arkell Dyslexia Charity. Yeah, great to be here. Um, 
can I just start with the basics, which is because I think dyslexia is often still misunderstood. What do people typically think it is and what is the actual definition? I think people typically think it's just a problem with reading and writing or spelling. And of course, that, that, that is a major aspect of dyslexia. There's no, there's no denying that. But it can affect people in all sorts of different ways. Like It might be that those areas are actually fairly strong, but they have problems with working memory and, and, and find it difficult to hold lots of different facts in their head at the same time or with organisation, um, participation in meetings, you know, as, as adults. In our experience, that's probably the biggest thing is the way that it affects people's confidence. So particularly in children, when you can see that others in your class appear to be doing really well and finding things really easy it just chips away at your self-confidence to think well why am I not um you know typical sort of phrase that people use when they come to us is why am I stupid why can't I do things that anyone else can do and and we'll come on to education shortly but just in terms of that question that you hear from children how do you answer that question? Because there'll be parents listening to this who will have heard it. What's the best way to start with that? Well, well I mean, the, a, a clear way to, to start with it, to say, well, there are, there are lots of people with dyslexia. One in 10 people, that's, a, that's a, probably a, a cautious estimate. Somewhere between one in five and one in 10 people have dyslexia. So, you know, A, it's not the end of the world. There's lots of people out there like you. You're not alone. It doesn't mean you're stupid at all. In fact, some of the most brilliant people are dyslexic. Richard Branson would be a, an example that gets quoted quite frequently. Jamie Oliver. There's lots of very brilliant people who have used their dyslexia to an advantage. The problem is, you know, by the time you're seven and you're already saying to yourself, I'm stupid. That's that has become quite a an ingrained narrative inside people's heads. So it does it does take a bit of changing. Something that we would particularly look at is trying to build children's confidence, explain that you're special, but also explain there are things that you find difficult that, and that's not because you're stupid it's because your working memory is working differently to to other children so you know don't get don't worry too much about that but accept it and then find out the positive ways that you can get around that and and a key to it uh, can be identifying and, and getting an early diagnosis but generally um it can be very difficult to get a diagnosis can, can you talk to us a bit about that and what that process looks like um yeah i mean getting a diagnosis would be brilliant if, if, if everyone could get to the bottom of what it is exactly that's causing the problems and as i say everyone with dyslexia will will have that showing in different ways so so finding that is important however it tends to be a very expensive business out there and it does cost a lot of money and that is a major barrier so that can lead to a, um, a situation where only a small proportion of people with dyslexia actually end up getting a diagnosis now, now this is a big thing for us as a charity we're trying to remove that barrier to to, um, to make sure that everyone has the same opportunity to get an assessment but but it's not necessarily easy if if um, money is tight for you which of course it is for many people so so that then you know obviously means there can be a real class element to this then it, it can be and and i think it's it's fairly well accepted sadly that if you go to state school your access to specialist teaching from people who understand dyslexia, and if you're teaching 30 children, you know, by the law of averages, somewhere between three and six of them probably have some degree of dyslexia. Um, in the state system, your access to help will be more limited than if you're in an independent school where the chances that there is a, an expert in the school or a specialist teacher will probably be higher. So, yeah, it's not an equal playing field, really. And, I mean, that is must be terrible for those children because by not having their dyslexia identified, presumably they all of those feelings of sort of shame and 
so on that you talked about you know are worse and 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 they struggle at school and you know it's a vicious circle yeah it's particularly a vicious circle because there's a strong hereditary component to dyslexia so it's not an absolute given but there's an increased likelihood that it's running through the genes. So dyslexic parents probably haven't been diagnosed either and will probably find it harder to navigate all of that information that's out there on the internet and find a way to to get support. The good thing is that you can make a difference. And, you know, from our point of view as a charity, we do have an ability to be able to help at least some people that just don't have any money behind them. Thanks to, you know, the donors that that, that come to us to provide money for that, for that purpose. Uh, but just let's talk about the education system, because obviously that's what one of the things that your charity specialises in. I mean, you know, how... How does the education system need to change in relation to dyslexia to provide children with the support that they need? Well, I think a a big step would be for increased awareness of dyslexia in the classroom and for teachers to gain more training in the support of dyslexic learners. There is some movement, I know, on the horizon to try and really do something about this. So it's, it's something that Matt, Matt Hancock, who's dyslexic himself, is really um, campaigning quite hard for, is to see if um, all youngsters in school can have access to at least some basic dyslexia screening as a, a starting point. Dyslexic children learn differently. And if everyone's taught the same, then if you, if you learn differently, you don't necessarily fit into that model. Copying off blackboards and things is just not something that works well for dyslexic children. So just an awareness of classroom teachers to be as multi-sensory as possible they were in their approach if you can touch things feel things hear things the more different angles you come at learning um, the the better that learning is is taken on board the thing is I don't want to you know overly criticize the the teaching profession because teachers do a really hard job and they've got 30 pupils there and teachers are in there for brilliant motivations but with the best will in the world it's a hard ask to be able to give all of those children a personalized approach i get i get that and that that support can be done in a, in the classroom in a way that is equitable to the 10 to 20% of dyslexic children and the 80 to 90% of children who aren't... There is a version of this that works for all children in a class. There is a version of this that exists that, that works for all children. Yeah, exactly. It would be possible to have learning that benefits dyslexic children, that benefits all learners. And I think that's all of us that are, are in the dyslexia field would be trying to um, clarify that so that the, the system doesn't have to help one person or the other. It can help, can help all. Just talking more uh, broadly, Andy, uh, we talked a lot about education and there's clearly miles to go on that. Talk to us, if you would, about other ways in which our society isn't as inclusive as it should be for dyslexic people and doesn't appreciate dis- the, the skills of dyslexic people. Yeah, so so with dyslexia affecting one in 10 people, there's an awful lot of adults out there with dyslexia and workplaces are another area where there can be some barriers, maybe unwitting barriers, but barriers, nevertheless, that, that disadvantage people with dyslexia. And the good thing is there's lots of work being done um, by all sorts of organisations. You'll have heard Kate talking at Made by Dyslexia. There's a real value to dyslexia there and you know, some work that's showing that the skills that dyslexic people typically show 
have a close match to the skills that are, that are starting to be increasingly recognised as valuable in the workplace of today and tomorrow. You're going to miss out on an awful lot of really good people if you just have a very black and white way of, of looking at your recruitment. But it's also onboarding processes as well. People join organisations. There can be an awful lot of information to take on. And the way that that's presented can either um, be really good for people with dyslexia or really bad for them. You know? and so just for, for organisations to think about the approaches that they can take and increasingly to try and encourage people to declare their dyslexia without fear that it's going to be perceived negatively or in some way end up with them being disadvantaged. So in our um, future podcast utopia, if, if, if we were to appoint you disability SAR, um in charge of devising government policy on this. I mean, it sounds like, I mean, firstly, that is a job and a half. But, I mean, what would be the first thing you'd do on day one? Would would that be uh, would be education policy? Well, I think the first thing is you do have to listen to the people that have these various conditions. You know, we're talking about dyslexia, but there'll be, you know, lots of other people out there with different things that affect them and just get get increased understanding, so a consultation that properly listens to the difficulties that people have and the ideas that people have for what could make that their difficulties less severe or, or, or less of a barrier. Because organisations like Microsoft are, are making big steps forward with accessibility is a big thing and removing barriers. You know, if you get, get some of the big uh, corporates that are involved in our lives on a daily basis really putting their heads together and working out how that they can make their um, services more accessible to more people, it benefits them as well, um, then you'd think that a lot of progress could be made. Well, look, uh, Andy Cook, uh, it's been great to, to chat to you. Uh, you. You've laid out lots of, well, lots of change that our society and our education system needs. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. We're delighted now to be joined by Kate Griggs, founder and CEO of Made by Dyslexia. Hello, Kate. Hello. Hello. Well, it's a fantastic organisation. It's a charity that supports dyslexic people and promotes understanding of dyslexia. You have well-known supporters, including Kira Knightley, Richard Branson, Jamie Oliver, Orlando Bloom, the Swedish royal family. I mean, this, this is quite the contacts list that you have. And I was wondering, like, do you have parties? Could we come to one? Oh, yeah, we, we have events. We're just starting live events again, which is fantastic. The, the whole premise of Made by Dyslexia is that we're all dyslexic and we're, we're gathering together the, the biggest social movement of dyslexic people to, to drive change because we have known for a long time that dyslexic thinking is massively valuable. Some of the greatest inventions and brands and um, people of all time have been made by dyslexia. So we really want to just shine a huge light um, and amplify this message to level the playing field so everybody's assessed and, and supported and everybody can reach their potential. And, and that visibility of role models is an incredibly important part of that. Um, as a dyslexic person specifically who went to school, I guess like uh, Ed and I both started school in the 70s, how have you seen both perception of and attitudes towards dyslexia shift in your lifetime? I think there's still a massive disparity and, and mismatch between those who know a lot about it and those who know nothing about it. I mean, I was incredibly lucky because I was failing terribly at my first school and my parents sent me to a school that identified and supported dyslexia. So I went from being a complete failure at school to actually doing really well. And my school was relatively unique at the time because it very much focused on all of the abilities that come with dyslexia. So I kind of, when I left school, I thought dyslexia had been sorted because there were some incredibly successful people were at school with me. And I realised when I had my son, who was clearly dyslexic, that actually things were far from from right. And that still to this day, despite knowing literally since the 1930s how, or even earlier, how to spot and support it, 80% of dyslexic children are leaving school unidentified. 
Um, and that's because of a lack of knowledge and a fear that it's going to cost a lot of money to to do something about it once we discover it, which just isn't true. Teachers can can support dyslexic children in mainstream very easily if they know what to do. We both watched your uh, TEDx talk, Kate, which I found incredibly inspiring. Just to get into what you talk about there, there's a kind of candid camera on a high street and you said you were running a dyslexic sperm bank uh, I think and uh, film people's reactions and, and asking people the question uh, would you rather have a child who's dyslexic or one who's neurotypical and most people would say the latter so in other words it's seen as a disadvantage being dyslexic and, and indeed that is probably a very common perception could you just say a little bit about why that is wrong and how we should be thinking about it? Yeah, so when we set up Made by Dyslexia as the charity, the brief to our ad agency was put us on the map really quickly and you can be as disruptive as you want to be. So I think setting up a spoof dyslexic sperm bank was a great great way to do that. But it, it did actually highlight the fact that at the time the London Sperm Bank had said if you were dyslexic, you couldn't donate sperm because it was considered to be a neurological deficit. And the problem is dyslexia is actually classified as a disability under the Disability Discrimination Act. And it's there because it gives people support. But the reality is, and we've done as a charity a lot of research into dyslexic thinking and the massive value it has in the world of work. We've done two reports with EY that have matched dyslexic thinking directly with the World Economics Forum skills for the future. And we've recently done a report with Manpower that has looked at the fact that the pandemic has sped up the digitization and now the skills that the future needs. By 2025, 50% of jobs will be done by machines and the 50% that will be done by humans need exactly dyslexic thinking skills. So we know if you're dyslexic, it's a brilliant skill to have. And we've recently done a campaign with LinkedIn and LinkedIn now recognize dyslexic thinking as a skill. So you can add it to your skills menu and it's included in dictionary.com as a skill. If you had to describe for our listeners who, who might just think about dyslexia as, you know, oh, yes, you have difficulty spelling words and so on. What are the sort of skills um, that people have? One very striking thing in uh, your talk, I think you say that GCHQ, I think people are four times overrepresented in their, is it their staff or their recruitment because of the particular skills they have? Is that right? Yeah, that's right. The problem solving, um, the ability to, to connect disparate facts, and, and which is if you're a spy and you're looking across lots of information, dyslexics are really, really good at doing that. And yeah, they have four times more dyslexics on their apprenticeship schemes than any other apprenticeship scheme. But just to describe dyslexic thinking, we're very good at seeing the big picture. We're able to, to connect the, the spots and, and actually get to, to the, the nub of a problem, which is is a really, really big skill, um, every profession. The other thing that dyslexics are amazing at is um, emotional intelligence, empathy, reading people, reading rooms, understanding how to motivate teams. Dyslexic thinking is about these amazing strengths, not just about our inability to spell. And stop criticising people's spelling because it's a sign that we're dyslexic, not stupid. We have a thing on the podcast called the Jeffocracy, which is a, a, a future utopia. And I'm inspired to appoint you maybe Minister for Unlocking Dyslexic Thinking. What could government be doing? So the first thing that government needs to do is make sure all teachers are trained. We've partnered with Microsoft and two of the world's leading dyslexia schools, one in America, one in the UK, and we have free teacher training. And that training focuses on strengths, but it also focuses on all the things that we need to support challenges as well. Um, So that is something that is free for government to implement in all schools. We are working with the city of New York and the mayor is going to be training every single teacher. So governments are embracing this everywhere. Just ours isn't at the moment, sadly. But I I think the the beauty of what we're doing is creating free resources for dyslexics, for parents, for teachers and for employers. So they have the power within their own hands to make the change. Hopefully governments will catch up, but we're certainly not going to be waiting for them. You said before that um, like 80 percent of dyslexic people leave school without a, a, a diagnosis. In the conversations you have and the people you meet, when people receive 
that diagnosis and come to understand themselves as an adult, what does it do for them? It's absolutely life-changing because when somebody points out that you might be dyslexic, it's like this light bulb moment that goes on and you, all of that pain that you had struggled with through school suddenly all makes sense. I, I can remember being humiliated at school by a teacher at my first school because I still don't know my times tables. I can look at a spreadsheet and I can tell you exactly where the mistake is if there is one just by looking at the patterns, but I don't know my times tables. And I was humiliated by my maths teacher who used to make me stand on a chair and recite the times tables that I didn't know. And that's still going on with spelling tests and reading out loud and all the things we're asking these kids to do when it's something they really do struggle with and can't do. We should be focusing on the creativity and the storytelling and all the wonderful things rather than their spelling, punctuation and grammar mistakes. Is, is there a key to getting to people to reconcile the, the fact that dyslexia is protected as a special learning um, difficulty or difference and it's a unique skill? It's a, it can be a bit of a disconnect for people and I'm wondering how you... Um, how you get neurotypical people to join those two things up? It is a difficult point to get across. I think the problem is that as an education system and as um, employers, we we tend to adopt these standardised tests. So we have to kind of measure everybody in the same way to see how far ahead schools are or how far ahead um, pupils are. And I think we need to get away from the fact that actually all thinking the same is the right way to think, because that's not what the world needs. It needs people who think differently. And I think just as we've accepted that we need diversity of, of race or we need diversity of, of sexual orientation, we need diversity of thoughts. You know, we don't all, we need to be more accepting as a society of people who don't think in, in the normal way. Um, and I do think that that is changing. We are becoming more accepting of people that don't fit into the norm. Um, and I, I think the fact that so many people are dyslexic and so many high profile people are dyslexic, we can really help to kind of push that agenda for, for other neurodiversities as well. And that's very much what we're, we're hoping to do as a charity. Well, look, it's really inspiring uh, to talk to you. You're obviously doing an amazing job with your organisation. Uh, Kate Griggs, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. To broaden the conversation, we're, we're now joined by Rob Jennings, who's a teacher and co-founder of the Dyscalculia Network. Uh, Rob, people are going to be, I think, less familiar with Dyscalculia. Can you just start by explaining what that is and, and how it is or isn't linked to dyslexia? Yeah, um, Dyscalculia is defined as a specific and persistent difficulty in understanding numbers. But it's really kind of one end of a spectrum of math difficulties. And it sometimes occurs with dyslexia and other special needs, but it can occur on its own. So it needs to be sort of, if you like, treated as a separate entity. But currently, it's said that it affects between 5 to 7% of the population. And that's irrespective of gender, uh, social income and education. And, and how does it manifest? I mean, it's it's not just a given uh, that if you are um, uh, an individual with dyscalculia that you're never going to be able to make friends with numbers. No. It, it, if, you saw, if you like, seen as a kind of almost like a foreign language. So it has a number of indicators, such as uh, understanding the relative value of numbers. So why is five bigger than four? Yeah because we're told that's, that's one of the laws. Um, without proving it, using dots or patterns and stuff to show that this one's a bigger group than the other, it's very difficult for a dyscalculic to sort of differentiate between those numbers. There's also something called subitizing as well, the inability to recognize small groups. Um, they also kind of uh, have difficulty estimating. So if you want to have a, a guess at an answer, you'll end up getting something that's completely unrealistic and completely way off the mark. I made a couple of examples here. So how many Smarties would you consider to be in an average packet? And so, you know, you get answers in 2 million, 3 million. That's a typical answer from a dyscalculic. 
and also estimating they've got no idea about perceived value. How much is a car? How much would a computer cost? What's my ticket on the on the bus going to cost? So completely out of the window with that. They're also kind of bad at retaining calculation strategies. They tend to count everything in ones. So if you had uh, a number like a calculation like four plus three, they would count one, two, three, and then four, five, six, seven. So it's all about counting in ones. And when they count backwards, it's even worse about being accurate because counting backwards is notoriously difficult for them as well. We've heard from Andy Cook about the problems around dyslexia not being sufficiently recognised in schools. I would have, I would guess it's even worse with dyscalculia. Even worse. Yeah, dyscalculia is really the poor relation of special education needs. It's probably about 10 years behind research and awareness in terms of dyslexia. I mean, the current research says that you're 100 times more likely for a pupil to receive a diagnosis and support than dyslexia. And that's despite the numbers being roughly equal. And that's quite worrying when you think about how numeracy affects people's life chances. And 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 how did you, if I may ask, get into you know co-founding your network? Well, Kat Edel and I are both uh, the co-founders um, are both math specialists. And there's a specific way of teaching maths to help people with dyscalculia. And we, we were doing this for a number of years and just recognising there isn't any a lack of specialist teachers to be able to support these learners. And so we decided to do something about it. And we formed the uh, dyscalculia network because uh, the lack of teachers, but also lack of awareness because people really no idea about the whole condition. So set up on that condition to do that. If it's not too big of a question, how do you in, in, incorporate dyscalculic students into the teaching of maths? Well, what's, what's currently happening um, is that someone will be recognised as being poor, poor, performing poorly in maths. And what will happen is they'll be uh, taken out, possibly on a one-to-one basis or a small group, and given more of the same. So if you're having problems in their fraction classes, they'll be sort of taken out and given more fractions. We use uh, the Jenga tower as a kind of a really good analogy because maths is a very modular topic. It's really built on all of strong foundations. And the more you go up the ladder, it's like the tower is you're adding bricks at the top, but you're taking them out in the foundation areas. So it's going to kind of really wobble and eventually fall over. So when intervention needs to be targeted at a much lower level, so to help with those fractions, you need to peel back and maybe do some work on division and use multi-century techniques to help them to understand what that division is all about. Talk to us about adults and your network. What kind of stories do you hear uh, from adults about what it means to receive a dyscalculia diagnosis later in life? Well, um, it's funny because uh, the more we... Uh, promoting awareness, more adults are saying, hey, that's me, that throws me to a T. And I've always been scared of sort of using numbers. And so we've got a couple of really nice ambassadors on the team now. And uh, we were talking to one of them the other night and uh, she was saying how, she's always been scared of using numbers, but she was in a, in a restaurant and uh, she wanted to add a tip onto the bill. And instead of like adding the 10% that she wanted, she inadvertently put 100% on there. And uh, she was no, not aware of what she was doing or the implications of what she'd done. And, and like with um, dyslexia, dys- dyscalculia often uh, co-occurs and overlaps yeah. with uh, other facets of neurodiversity, ADHD or dyspraxia. And, you know, I, f- I feel that most people probably haven't even heard the word neurodiversity. And and even when you look at the expertise and the neuroscience on this, it really seems like we're, we're just in the foothills of it. We like optimism on this podcast. Where, where do you see our understanding and, and the conversation around this going in the next decade and beyond? Well, one of the uh, aims of the setting up the network was to provide more awareness, but also help we do regular webinars with Senkos, 
you know, the in-school in support network. But ultimately, it's got to be uh, the provision of more uh, trained specialist math teachers and the specialist assessors, because it's all very well to have an early intervention. But if you haven't got the staff or the wherewithal or the abilities to back that up, then that child will become an adult that has dyscalculia. But it's really moving in the right direction. You know, we're talking to lots of people. There's lots of opportunities to sort of train teachers. And a lot of teachers that are taking on the two courses that are available uh, around the country to become specialist math teachers and assessors. I think there'll be people who have been listening to this podcast who either think, yes, that describes me. I'm somebody who's got dyscalculia and the first I've realized it is listening to this podcast. Or there'll be people who maybe teach maths and want to be part of your network. How can they get involved? Well, we've on the, we've on the website, we've got tutor listings. So we can uh, accept all teachers uh, who want to sign up with us. It's a free uh, website we don't charge anything but also we a lot of parents who are worried about their, their ch children they can get in touch with us and we can sort of put them in a, uh, a dialogue and, and try and help them rob jennings thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us and if people just google dyscalculia network that will take them to the website you're talking about and that'll be a good starting point yeah. for them great thank you very much well what did you think what? I mean, I'm, I'm broadly interested in neurodiversity and I, I sort of read about it and listen to podcasts with some frequency. Yeah. But this, this episode has, has shifted even my understanding of dyslexia. So I think that shows what a long way to go there is. And I think the, the stuff you were talking about with Kate about stigma is important. The truth is that if you said to most pregnant people, here's a pill you can take and it will guarantee that you don't have a dyslexic baby, yeah. and most people w would take it. Yeah. And I think that says a lot about how far we have to go, both in terms of attitudes, but in terms of building a society where something like dyslexia or dyscalculia has no more impact on whether you can succeed than your hair colour or your height. I just find it heartbreaking really that there's this huge chunk like up to a fifth of people who have had this message that they're they're stupid ingrained from an early oh, age yeah. and that's just going to affect their oh, lives yeah. and how they move through life oh, and yeah. i was struck by what andy said of course it's important to have these well-known role models and dyslexic people are, are an oversized proportion of very successful people but there's also this fact that they're overrepresented in the prison system too and i think i've read definitely about other aspects of neurodiversity that that is true of homelessness and mental health problems too but in all of it you know there is optimism because in in our lifetimes we've gone from dyslexia being a punchline it was a common thing to hear jokes about dyslexia to these kinds of conversations and, and the visibility of these people talking about their own experience so i think that is a that's a good trajectory yeah I, I don't want to be downbeat, but I'm quite shocked by this episode because I thought it was a sort of 1980s stereotype. I had dyslexia. It wasn't diagnosed at school. Da 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 da. But I mean, it obviously still goes. I mean, if 80 percent is still undiagnosed, it's unbelievable. And and then and then when you think about the wealth aspect of it as well, that if you've got money, you can kind of receive a diagnosis and, and specialist help. But if you you haven't, you're sort of left twisting in the wind a little bit. It's not like it's an a new condition that's that's sort of only just arisen, you know, why are we still so behind? And one question we didn't ask, which what did occur to me is whether I wonder whether there are other countries that do it better than us. I, I tell you, I thought the other thing was about Kate's talk, and I was really taken by Kate's talk and what she said. She was making a sort of really interesting argument, which is not only the sort of GCHQ point, if you like, which is dyslexic people have skills that neurotypical people don't. But she was sort of saying maybe we should be thinking about learning from those skills that dyslexic people have for the rest of us. And I thought that was a really interesting way of of thinking about it. You know, it's almost like because it's been so stigmatized, not only have we underestimated the skills of dyslexic people that they have that uh, neurotypical people don't have, but we haven't even thought, well, maybe they can teach us something. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. 
LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well-lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Let's take a quick dip into some of the correspondence we've received since the last episode. Firstly, uh, th this email comes from Penny, who says, Dear Ed and Jeff, at the Table Manners live show at the London Palladium last night, Lenny was asked who is her favourite guest of all time, and she said, Ed! I mean, that is just the business. I really liked Lenny and Jesse. I mean, I like Lenny even more Well, now. I was going to say, this shows the fundamental difference between <laughs> me and you, because if, if I had heard that about myself, my first thought wouldn't be, how nice of Lenny it would be, but why didn't Jesse also say that? No, it wouldn't. Come on. It would. It wouldn't. I'm very quick to perceive a slide. No, I thought you were going to say, you know, the difference between you and me is you'd have been sort of bashful about it, and I'm sort of lapping it up. You said, Jeff, can you read out the email yeah, exactly. about me being Lenny's favourite exactly. guest? I don't want to do it because it'll look too... Uh, exactly. Self-referential. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. I also saw, so, you know, Matt Chorley, who I think, is he a political yes. columnist at The Times? He did a tweet the other day which said, if you were standing in for the Queen yes. today, it was on the day of the state opening of Parliament, which small, possibly petty, but life-improving law would you like to announce? And um, Mike, Mike Bertie replied everything in the Jeffocracy to become law, even the stuff that contradicts the other stuff. Yeah. So we came back to them, I saw on, on Twitter, with uh, surely you're not suggesting there's disorganisation within the upper echelons of the Jeffocracy. And, and Mike replied, chaos with Jeff Lloyd, which I think has a certain ring yeah. to it. How many um, fake Twitter accounts do you have? I mean, obviously, Mike Bertie is one of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What are your other ones? How many? I think, I think I've think i got one fewer than you have because you had to add the one about being uh, Lenny's favourite guest at the Palladium oh, that you sent that's, in that email that's from. That's true, yeah, touche. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This comes from Anna Redmond. Dear Ed and Jeff, I'm a massive fan of the show. Loving your work. I really enjoyed your episode about Channel 4. Again, that's the difference between me and you because I read those things. I take them in. I think, how nice. And then when I'm reading it out, I always self-edit those bits. Yeah, okay. You're rubbing in now. I really enjoyed your episode about Channel 4. Uh, but I think you've missed a trick. If the government insists on selling it off, we should create a viewer co-op and buy it up. That way it will be free to do whatever we decide it should do. Also, do you know which listener has had the most emails read out on the podcast? Because I think it might be me. Mm. I've written in about the Olympics in July 2019, black bean soup and its hazards to hedgehogs in July 2020. I remember that one mentioned in several episodes. What to tell children about Santa in 2020 and renaming the Jeffocracy to the Cheerfulocracy in December 2021. And this email will make five smiley face. I don't want anything, maybe just a badge or a peerage or being made friend of the pod. Thank you for everything you're doing. Keep up the excellent work. And I think that says a lot about the quality of your email because people write in and we, you know, we, we don't get to read them out. But I think, yeah, you... I think five is top of the leaderboard, yeah? Absolutely. Yeah. We should get her a badge. Do you want to say how other people can get in touch with us? 
Yes. I mean, it's dead easy. Uh, go to the website and there's a thing you can send from there. It's cheerfulpodcast.com. Anything that crosses your mind. I mean, well, you can find us on, on Twitter uh, or, or whatever as well, but I think the website is the best way to do it. And we'd love to hear from you in a similar vein or in a more weighty vein on what we could be doing in terms of episodes or uh, your reaction to some of the stuff you've heard. Yeah. Cheerfulpodcast.com. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at Cheerful Podcast. While we're in the outro, there we are. It's a lovely temperature. It's a nice temperature for the outro. So I did a, um, as part of my various book appearances, I did one in Stratford the other day, the Stratford Literary Festival. Aha! Because um, people are talking about you as the greatest English writer since Shakespeare, so it seems appropriate. Yeah, thanks very much for your sarcasm. And there was someone in the audience... There was? Congratulations, because I know you were worried about that. Yeah, there was someone in the audience, in the front row, a lady who asked a question, and and as I recall, she was 96. Was it the Queen? Nope, and she had been a Labour Party member for 80 years. Wow. I mean, that is impressive, isn't it? Yes. I think her name was Janet. She gave me a hard time. Uh, But... um, I mean, that means she joined in the 1940s, yeah? Yeah, I guess so. And she didn't say the closest she ever came to revoking it was between 2010 and 2015? She did, actually, but I decided not to mention that. Um, she was she was a standout. Great. Well, shall we thank our guests? I feel sad that this episode is ending. You can always come to my uh, Eurovision yeah, that party is on true. Saturday night if do, you want more. Do you know, uh, what, who do you want me to dress as? Do you remember uh, a band from Finland won it about 15 years ago and they were like a death metal band who wore scary horror masks? Do you think that means Lordy, they were called. Yeah, that, that, I think. And then you could always send somebody in your stead and you say, I turned up and just have them refuse to take the mask off. Okay, fine, I'll find somebody. Yeah. Uh, should we thank our guests? Yes. I'd like to thank Andy Cook, Kate Griggs and Rob Jennings. Emma Caution produces the audio for our episode and we need to welcome... Welcome. Uh, welcome our producer... Welcome. ...for all the stuff that you hear, the welcome. guest booking, the research. Welcome. How have we done it, Ed? We've persuaded somebody to come and work with us. Welcome. So welcome to Rachel Barmer, who's done a, a, a great job this week, I think. Great job, and we're really delighted to have her. And she's left, I'm, I hope I'm allowed to say that she's left the treasury for us. Wow. Let's see uh, see how she likes the one o'clock in the morning text messages and emails when something pops into your head. Yeah. Interspersed with not being able to get hold of you for days on end. Yeah. <laughs> he said slightly bitterly. <laughs> Right, should we move on? Yes. Uh, and, and Rachel's been supported by Joe Kenyon at Goldfish London. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Uh, James Deacon made our idents. Ed Seed composed the music. And our artwork was designed by... Henry Cole. He's been ducking and diving. He's been Eurovision jiving. And these have been... Reasons to be cheerful. Mm-hmm.